0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. The Statehouse and other state government buildings in downtown Columbus are closed and locked down starting today through Wednesday as a result of threats to state capitals nationwide following the attack on the U.S. Capitol. In a moment, comments about that from Governor Mike DeWine and Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including that incident at the Capitol, the funeral in Columbus of Andre Hill, shot and killed last month by a Columbus police officer, and a segment about why assisted living centers were not included with nursing homes in the first round of COVID-19 vaccinations. In a little over 40 minutes from now, we'll have a segment about herd immunity and what percent of Americans will have to be vaccinated in order for that to happen. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the president and CEO of the March of Dimes about premature births and the infant mortality rate in Ohio. First up on Columbus Perspective, Governor Mike DeWine and Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther held a joint news conference this week to announce how they're preparing for possibly violent demonstrations in the coming days. The governor's comments run about five minutes and the mayor's about four. Here's Governor
1: Mike DeWine. I think all Americans were horrified by what we saw just a few days ago in our nation's capital, where a mob attacked the capital, where individuals died as a result, and where really the Constitution itself was under attack. We were horrified by what we saw. The sad truth is that there are people in our country who want to turn peaceful protests into opportunities for violence these are violent people and their violence will not be tolerated in ohio and it will not be tolerated anywhere just as we respect and will protect peaceful protesters we will also just as vigorously resist violence. That violence will not be tolerated. So the Ohio State Highway Patrol will be out in force in Columbus. The Ohio National Guard will be out in force in Columbus. Our Guard will be there to back up local law enforcement and to back up the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Both will have a significant presence in Columbus. Also, both will be available for any place else where trouble might arise. We have a strong relationship with our mayors Uh, As we demonstrated, I think, this past summer, and when the patrol uh, or the National Guard is needed to back up local police, they will be there. And we will respond quickly. I have a proclamation to sign that officially mobilizes the guard to be in Columbus and to be anywhere else uh, in the state that they are in fact needed. Uh, This is a proclamation that I am going to sign right now, and I will read a small portion of it. Uh, Now, therefore, I, Mike DeWine, Governor of the State of Ohio, hereby authorizes, as needed, in state activity, duty, status, those personnel and units of the Ohio National Guard, as designated by the Adjutant General, they are needed to assist the state and local authorities. I will now sign the document I've done so now. Further, I have uh, at the request of our federal government, um, we are now, uh, I've authorized uh, the deployment of 500 more members uh, of the Ohio National Guard, making a total of approximately 700 members of the National Guard that will be, and some are already in the national, a capital area or close by. We are, of course, part uh, of a national uh, effort. And our guard always is is part of that national force. We have unique capabilities. Uh, We have special personnel and special equipment that has been specifically requested by the federal government for us to deploy to Washington and we have responded and done so. Along with Speaker Cupp and Senate President Huffman, we are announcing today that the state house will be closed this coming Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Further, I'm also ordering all state office buildings in downtown Columbus to be closed on these four days as well. State personnel will work from home or work from other assigned places. Finally, it is time I believe for us to come together as a country uh, as we always do after elections. It's time for us to observe the peaceful transfer of power and to remind ourselves of what brings us together, binds us together, holds us together as Americans, our love for freedom, our love for liberty, our love for our Constitution. And that is what we'll celebrate uh, in the days ahead. Let me now turn to Mayor Ginther. Uh, Mayor Ginther and I have uh, done press conferences uh, before in regard to the virus, in regard to other disturbances. Uh, So Mayor, it's good to be back uh, uh, with you even this time if we are remote from each other, but I'll turn it over to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Governor, and good morning. Good morning to Uh, General Harris, uh, to Chief Quinlan, Colonel Fambro, uh, very much appreciate you all uh, being with us and your incredible leadership during these trying times. Our nation is facing a great struggle right now after the violence at the Capitol last week and threats of armed protests across the country this weekend and heading into the inauguration of President-elect Biden. Those threats are being brought to our doorstep right here in Columbus to the steps of the State House. As I said last week, what we saw in the Capitol is not who we are as a country. It is unacceptable. It was a vile demonstration of the worst elements of our society that we cannot ignore and we must root out and guard against. Lest it be allowed to squelch the pursuit of equality and the common good that defines who we are as a people. In the coming days, we will not allow hate, violence and destruction to be part of our city. Our Constitution gives everyone the right to protest peacefully. It does not give anyone the right to incite violence, harm or intimidate others or destroy property. Governor Dewan and I stand together on this. This is not a Democrat or Republican concern. This is not a partisan issue. It is our responsibility as Americans and elected leaders to protect the safety of our residents and defend our city, state and nation against those who seek to tear it down. Hate has no place in Columbus. Ohio, or these United States of America. We're taking every measure together to assure the safety of our residents and protection of our institutions. That means activating the National Guard. That means close collaboration between the Columbus Division of Police, Ohio State Highway Patrol, Homeland Security, and the FBI. We can do our part to keep our city safe as well. What hate groups want is confrontation, to give them a platform and to amplify their message. Let's not give it to them. Avoid planned protests this weekend and leading up to the inauguration. Be aware of your surroundings and your situation. Leave if you do not feel safe. Seek help if you see something suspicious. If you see something, say something to make sure we protect our neighbors and find peaceful ways to celebrate the lessons in life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who we celebrate birthday and honoring on Monday. As you all know, Governor DeWine and I have worked together closely over the last year on some of the most difficult issues our city and state have ever faced. Let me say it again, we stand together on this, protecting the safety and security of our city, our state, our residents, and those brave men and women who have answered the call to protect all of us. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mayor.
0: Governor Mike DeWine and Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther talking about preparations this week for possible violent protests. Adjutant General John Harris, who is the commander of the Ohio National Guard, talked about deployments to protect the U.S. Capitol and the Ohio State House. This runs just about three minutes.
3: We're sending just upwards of 700 to the National Capital Region. And that's uh, some very specific capabilities, as the governor said. Uh, First are those security type forces that can augment the uh, law enforcement there in the National Capital Region. So. That's just over, well, I won't get into the number, but it's two companies and a headquarters of of specially trained folks that can help with the security of critical infrastructure there. Uh, Additionally, we've sent some communications uh, personnel and equipment, and they'll be able to provide some redundancy for communication should that become necessary. So even in the most austere environments, they'll be able to establish voice and, and data communications if necessary. And on top of that, we've sent a very specialized unit called our Homeland Response Force. And that unit has the capability to to not only uh, provide security, but also they do what's called consequence management. So if there were a major event there, this unit can can do high, very high level, high skilled uh, search and rescue, both from confined spaces, high angle search and rescue, but also they can do it in a chemical, biological, nuclear environment. So this is a Uh, a precaution that's been requested by the folks there in the National Capital Region and the governor's directed that we send it. But uh, I will tell you that we're always, oh, they can do it in a chemical, biological, nuclear environment. So this is a a precaution that's been requested by the folks there in the National Capital Region and the governor's directed that we send it. But uh, I will tell you that we're always measuring Uh, the information and and the information drives our operations. so we're doing risk management to ensure that uh, what we have here in the state is is what we need for the state so so as the governor said he's directed the mobilization of forces Uh, what we've mobilized is our National Guard response force for for missions here in the state right now specifically for the for the capital so that's I will say it's upwards of 400 personnel that we will have in the national capital region. And we've provided some depth, and I won't get into the specifics about that, but we have depth to respond to other places around the state also. And those forces will be able to do a number of missions. They can do security of critical infrastructure, They can do uh, traffic control vehicle checkpoints to augment local law enforcement if that becomes necessary. And if the worst case occurs and that those forces have to help with crowd control, they're specifically trained and equipped to do that.
0: Adjutant General John Harris, commander of the Ohio
4: National Guard.
2: visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Tracy.
5: After a rally held by the president, Congress started to count electoral votes. That process was first stopped by an objection to the votes cast in Arizona. Then, rioters there to support the president stormed and breached the Capitol. They broke windows, rummaged through offices, and chanted in the halls of Congress, One woman was shot by police, three others died from medical emergencies, and a Capitol police officer also lost his life. It's being described as a day of chaos and violence. Thank you for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Let's take you through what happened Governor Mike DeWine called the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol thugs and blamed the president's speech before the chaos as a call for mob rule. Reporter Kevin Landers has DeWine's reaction. What happened was devastating. It was despicable.
4: Governor Mike DeWine said he and his wife Fran found it hard to comprehend what happened at the U.S. Capitol. Governor DeWine called out President Donald Trump for inciting the crowd. President
1: Trump's continued refusal to accept the election results without producing credible evidence of a rigged election has started a fire that has threatened to burn down our democracy. This incendiary speech, when he gave preceding the march that he gave to the protesters served only to fan those flames, encouraging the mob behavior that ensued.
4: The governor's critics argue his tough talk now rings hollow when he could have been more forceful to denounce President Trump's false claims about the election months ago. DeWine addressed his critics.
1: we got people who don't like what I do. I understand that. Uh, but what I've cautioned people all the way through and what I've said is trust the system.
5: And that was Kevin Landers reporting. Governor DeWine says he still supports President Trump and says he likes his aggressive trade agreements and his appointments of judges. When asked if he would support Donald Trump should he run for re-election, the governor dodged the question. DeWine also said while he agrees with the 25th Amendment that would replace the president with the vice president, but he said that would be to do that now would only throw gas on a fire and divide the country even more. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty also weighing in, saying President Trump must go now. She is the current chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and says I think that he has placed this uh, nation and, and people into a in harm's way. I think he is dangerous. Uh, I think that he is having a very difficult time.
6: Uh, with losing the election to what he said and in inciting those uh, thugs, rioters to come
5: to the Capitol. Uh, the death of those individuals, I feel so strongly about this, is on the of Donald Trump. We also talked with Congressman Bill Johnson, who ended up voting to reject the Electoral College count. He condemned the violence, but he did not point the finger ab- of blame at President Trump
3: president has announced that, uh, uh, that that he is committed
2: to an orderly transition of power uh, he's going to be uh,
4: he's going to be out of office in a little more than uh, about 10 days so I, I think we'll put this period behind us uh, but but clearly the
1: ones that are at fault the ones that are that should be held accountable rather
2: than looking at, at pointing fingers, we need, to, uh, we need to press
4: charges on those that,
5: that participated in this. The day after the attack on the Capitol, city leaders chimed in on a radio forum. They say there appears to be a difference compared to that of protesters this summer. More than 1,000 members of law enforcement were stationed in D.C. ahead of the Black Lives Matter protests. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says he saw a very clear difference in the interactions between police and these two groups.
2: There were so many uh, images, videos, actions that were disturbing, Uh, but I think it it really reinforces clearly the disparities in the way that uh, folks feel and see and experience the interactions with law enforcement.
5: Leaders also talked about how to move forward. They believe a Citizens Review Board will help hold police accountable. Columbus voters approved that board in the November election. It will direct, fund, and staff an independent inspector general department to investigate allegations of police misconduct. Applications for the board are now being accepted. The sight of U.S. elected representatives crouching under desks, afraid for their lives at the nation's Capitol building, drew swift reaction from leaders worldwide.
4: I think what we've seen in the United States is terribly distressing, terribly concerning.
5: The Australian prime minister, just one of many. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson also described the scenes as disgraceful, adding it was now vital that there was a peaceful and orderly transfer of power to President-elect Joe Biden. The German foreign minister also condemned the violence, while European Parliament President David Sassoli said that the incident was deeply concerning. Sassoli also said, democratic votes must be respected. We are certain the U.S. will ensure that the rules of democracy are protected. The Capitol building riots have raised some questions about the role of the vice president in a situation like this. One is, can Vice President Mike Pence invoke the 25th Amendment and remove President Trump from office? Jason Puckett from our Verify team answers that question.
7: We're breaking down two of the most asked questions online right now. First, can the vice president invoke the 25th Amendment? According to our Congressional Research Service report, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment allows the vice president to, quote, assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Now, it only requires that the vice president have approval from the majority of the cabinet. But if the president challenges, then two-thirds of Congress would have to approve. So technically, yes, the vice president can invoke the 25th Amendment. But it's never happened in U.S. history, and that same Congressional Research Service report indicates that the amendment was, quote, not intended to facilitate the removal of an unpopular or failed president. Second question, was this the first time the U.S. Capitol was stormed and seized since 1814? A lot of claims out there about this. Now, while congressional records show minor attacks in the last century, none of them involved more than a handful of people. The kind of large-scale breach and takeover of the Capitol we saw Wednesday hasn't happened since 1814 when British troops stormed Washington and burned the Capitol. So this claim is also verified. Now, folks, there are tons of claims and rumors online right now. If you see something you want us to check out, send us an email. We can verify. I'm Jason Puckett.
5: The governor addressed the backlash he's facing after signing that controversial stand your ground bill, which takes away the duty to retreat when shooting someone in self-defense.
1: Majority of states in the union um, are consistent with what Ohio did. I've talked to people on both sides of this issue. Uh, There are people who feel adamantly about this, both sides. I I understand that.
5: One Republican who voted against Stand Your Ground is Senator Matt Dolan of Northeast Ohio. He sponsored the Strong Ohio bill, which is supposed to reduce gun violence following the Dayton shooting. Yet that bill stalled in committee. The senator says he believes the legislature is sending a bad message.
2: We, of course, need to protect the right to own and possess a gun. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be circumspect about the use of a gun. And when violence is occurring, we should stop that violence. And we have failed to do that. And if I were a family member of a a gun violence, I would be upset with us.
5: The senator says he will start the process again to pass that strong Ohio bill, he says it's going to require lawmakers from both parties to recognize the goal of getting guns out of the hands of violent people. There's no question this is a controversial piece of legislation. Some people worry it adds another layer of danger. And others say without Stand Your Ground, they're not safe. 10TV's Richard Solomon talked with supporters and opponents of Senate Bill 175. In 90 days, people won't be required to retreat before they can justifiably use a gun
6: in self-defense. And tonight it has many Ohioans torn on if this is exactly what the state needs. While some approve this law change needed to be, you know, uh, people need the ability to defend themselves. Others
8: don't. This is not a law that is going to reduce gun violence.
6: The Stand Your Ground Law, or Senate Bill 175, now has the approval and signature of the governor. In the legislation, if someone uses a gun in self-defense and shoots someone, a court can't consider if the person could have just escaped instead of shooting when deciding if the person acted in self-defense. This move isn't sitting well with Toby Hoover. Hoover is with the Ohio Coalition Against Gun Violence. She noted the violent year 2020 was. Hoover feels this law, which is supposed to decrease violence, will do nothing but incite more.
8: There are so many people out there that are going to be frightened because somebody isn't just like them. And you know, that's what we're dealing with in this country right now.
6: But Rob Sexton, the spokesperson for the Buckeye Firearm Association, strongly believes that won't be the case. He says the new law will make self-defense laws stronger.
2: This is a badly needed change. We need to remove the burden away from victims of crime and shift it onto uh, some responsibility onto those who commit it.
6: Another change under the law. You don't have to be in your car or home for this to apply, just anywhere you're legally allowed. Now, Ohio is the 36th state to adopt this legislation. Reporting in Columbus, Richard Solomon, 10TV News.
5: Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther also responded, saying he is disheartened and called it a bad policy for Ohio. Mayor Nan Whaley announced that she will not be running for re-election in Dayton.
8: This is the best job I have ever had, but I believe our city can only continue to grow if we give space and opportunity for new leaders and new ideas.
5: In the Twitter video released earlier this week, Mayor Whaley promised to continue to be an advocate for the city. She did hint at an announcement soon about what comes next. New faces in the Ohio Senate, including recently elected Senate President Matt Huffman, who was sworn in from home last week as he recovers from COVID-19. While dozens of lawmakers took their oaths before the General Assembly, outgoing Senate President Larry Ophoff, wished President Huffman a speedy recovery, and had a message for the new lawmakers on the floor.
0: We're here for the people of our districts, uh, the hundreds of thousands of people that each of us individually represents. Uh, Some of them voted for you, some of them did not, uh, but you work for all of them nonetheless. And every day, um, hopefully, uh, we all wake up and ask ourselves, how can we make their lives better?
5: The Ohio Senate maintained a Republican majority following the 2020 election. A prominent Republican from Ohio received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Trump. Congressman Jim Jordan has been an outspoken supporter of the president, particularly during the impeachment hearings. This award is the nation's highest civilian honor. In a sweeping pandemic aid bill passed just before Christmas, Congress approved $600 stimulus payments for each eligible person. The first of those payments started going out on December 29th. You may have seen it pending in your account. The payments will continue to be sent through January 15th, but anyone eligible who isn't automatically sent the money by then will have to claim it on their 2020 tax return. Paper checks or debit cards will be sent to those who don't already have a bank account on file. People can check the status of both their first and second stimulus payments by using the Internal Revenue Services Get My Payment Online tool if you filed your 2019 taxes with H&R Block you might be delayed in getting your stimulus check. The company says if you use the IRS Get My Payment tool you might see your check went to an account number that's not yours. Apparently if you use the refund transfer option from H&R Block your check might be sent to that temporary account and if the money doesn't appear in yours you'll still be able to get it on this year's tax return. And we did ask a tax expert about how you claim this on your returns this year.
9: If you haven't received it at all, um, basically you just, there's gonna be a form on the tax return where you complete it and it'll calculate your stimulus payment. And then you offset that with any previous stimulus payments you've received.
5: Loved ones bid farewell to a Columbus man shot and killed by a police officer. The funeral for Andre Hill and how his family is calling for action. And later, when it comes to the vaccine, there's a long line for it. We'll explain a priority between two groups that some might consider to be the same.
2: Hey, this is Kevin Love from the Cleveland Cavaliers. At times, life can feel scary, which can leave us hurting and feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. Now, more than ever, we need to be kind to ourselves, kind to our mental health, and find some time and space in these tough times. Mindfulness is something that's helped me, and I hope it can help you too. My nonprofit is partnering with Headspace to offer you free content that can ease those feelings of anxiety. It's as easy to do as this. Take a big, deep breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth. In. And out. Just breathing. In. out head to kevinlovefund.org headspace and be kind to your mind
10: this is my new best friend esther she might look like any normal playful puppy but esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability to get there she needs lots of loving care and attention plenty of exercise and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call (coughs) 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability.
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
3: They knew it was a non-emergency call. They now knew he was unarmed. Why handcuff him? What was his crime?
5: Loved ones say goodbye to a Columbus man who was shot and killed by a police officer. A cry for justice and change punctuated the emotional funeral service for Andre Hill. Those who gathered to celebrate his life, and as 10TV's Andrew Kinsey shows us, they are also calling for action.
3: This is my story. This is my
11: soul. A celebration of life the for a man whose own life was cut short at the hands of a police officer.
7: He was our brother, and he should be with us today.
11: Family and friends remembered Andre Hill, a man they knew and loved long before his name made headlines.
12: Andre was memorable in any encounter because he could light up the room with his interest, his smile.
11: A father and grandfather. He was my support. He was my best friend. We had a special bond that nobody understood. Remembered as a man devoted to his family, always optimistic, smiling, and highly skilled, with a dream of one day owning his own restaurant.
12: funeral and Andre should not be in the same sentence. They don't go together. I mean, he was taken away from us way too soon in the prime of his life.
11: His life ended on December 22nd. 47-year-old Hill was shot after officers were dispatched to a non-emergency disturbance call. Former Columbus police officer Adam Coy opened fire after screaming, Hill had a gun. However, no weapon was ever found. His absence is now creating a void and an unspeakable pain for those who loved him. This is very sudden and it's a void in my heart that I'll never get back. Their hurt and anguish now reigniting a call for change.
3: Killing black men unarmed right before Christmas, doing a friend a favor, that's trouble.
11: And we're tired of the excuses. Civil rights advocate Reverend Al Sharpton is echoing the calls from Hill's family for charges to be filed against the former officer who shot Hill.
3: You are hired to be your brother's keeper, (laughs) not your brother's killer.
11: If you couldn't have lived up to the badge, you shouldn't have put it on. The hope is to reach a turning point that will bring about action, preventing Hill's death from being in vain.
5: That's Andrew Kinsey reporting. The Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy at the service. 10TV's Christopher Frost talked with him afterward to find out what changes he says should be made to make sure police and the black community can coexist
8: weeks ago, Al Sharpton and other civil rights leaders, they met with President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, and there's two things that Sharpton is challenging both of them to do.
5: We need
3: to have the re-implementing of the police reforms that he was part of as Vice President to President Obama.
8: Police reforms, which include a police task force that initiated the conversation of body cameras. The other thing he's asking of them.
3: I challenged him that I would prefer a black attorney general, but at least have an attorney general that has a background in policing, in civil rights and voting
8: rights. With help from Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, he believes federal changes could come, which creates stricter rules around body cameras. No more excuses. For those in Columbus, the end of excuses could come with a proposed law thought of by Hill's daughter.
3: If you don't have your body cam video that the taxpayers in Columbus uh, paid all this money for, so we would have transparency, then you
7: should be terminated.
8: Family attorney Ben Crump says Andre's law would also require officers to render medical assistance. Crump says it's the least someone can do for another human life.
3: Like, Alvin, his brother, said, whether they are a victim or a
8: suspect, you still treat people with humanity. In Columbus, Krista Frost, 10TV News.
5: And we're told Columbus City Council could address the proposed Andres law as early as January 25th when they meet. Vaccine distribution has its rules, including which facilities get it first. We'll show you why nursing home residents were given priority over people living in assisted living centers.
7: If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You could say how are you or get a fake tattoo. You can ask with an act if it works for you. You could write him a text or knit him a sweater. If you can't be together, you could write him a letter. Whatever,
12: whatever, whatever gets you talking?
7: Chat on the game, kick off your flip-flops. You can ask on your couch while you binge-watch. However you do it, you gotta ask a friend. And if they don't share, you can ask again. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking.
12: Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking
7: out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. This is
0: Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
5: When it comes to who gets the COVID-19 vaccine first in Ohio, not everyone is treated the same. A viewer reached out to us for answers about why nursing home residents were given priority over those living in assisted living centers. 10TV's Kevin Landers went looking for answers.
8: This is my mom when she graduated from high school.
4: Virginia Thomas Plyer's mother is now 90 years old and living with dementia in an assisted living center connected to a nursing home in Van Wert, Ohio. Those in assisted living can't get the COVID vaccine until those in nursing homes get one first. It's how Ohio's vaccination distribution plan was intended.
8: Staff go back and forth. Um, It doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't all be vaccinated with The vaccine at the same time because you could still spread the disease from one section to the other.
4: She says she's tried to get the state to address her concerns but no luck.
8: I have not been able to get an an explanation. I've tried contacting Governor DeWine's
4: office. So we took her questions to the governor. He explained why one group is getting the shot over the other.
1: That by and large, by and large, uh, people who are in high skilled nursing home settings are more fragile uh, than people in assisted living but if you have someone in assisted living or if you're watching this and you live in assisted living just as soon as these four pharmacy companies have gotten or done with the nursing homes they're rolling right into assisted living
4: but how long will they have to wait? The governor couldn't say because it depends on the amount of the vaccine the state receives, and it still must give the second vaccine to those who already had their first shot.
1: Unless that speeds up, we're gonna be a long time going through one A and then one B, and I don't like it.
4: As for Virginia Thomas Plyer, she says the longer her mom has to wait for a vaccine, the longer it will take for her to see her mom in person, which now consists of waving through a window.
8: I just want her to have the vaccine, and I want the vaccine, so that I can you know, be in the same room with her again.
5: Kevin Landers, 10TV News. The governor said the state prioritized nursing homes over assisted living facilities because that is where most Ohioans have died from the virus. The state is also trying to encourage more health care workers who work in nursing homes to get the vaccine. If you have questions about the vaccine, just text us at 614-460-3345, and we'll try to get you some answers. Students at Bishop Hartley are starting the new year with a pretty sweet freebie, free lunches for the rest of the school year. Last fall, the school applied for a grant through the USDA to help families facing financial hardships because of the ongoing pandemic. All students, whether remote learning or not, can pick up a free lunch. Well, thank you all so much for being with us here today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state.
0: That's again, Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
12: In times of fear, World Vision has been there for the most vulnerable. For the last 70 years, we've stood with kids and families during some of the world's hardest times. Through natural disasters, war and disease, delivering life-saving aid and support, helping rebuild lives, and empowering entire communities to lift themselves out of poverty. And we're doing the same today. Because rising to these challenges is in our DNA. And with every act of courage, faith, and love, at home and abroad, we do more than just stop the spread of fear. We replace it with hope. Learn more at worldvision.org.
8: How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sounds familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the Responsible Gambling Quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling.
10: Many employees unable to work because of COVID-19 related reasons may be able to take up to two weeks of paid sick leave and up to 10 more weeks of paid leave to care for their children whose schools or places of care have closed or whose daycare providers are unavailable. To find out if you qualify, visit dol.gov FFCRA or call a trained professional at 866-4US-WAGE. This message is sponsored by the U.S. Department of Labor.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan.
13: It's one of Dr. Anthony Fauci's greatest frustrations.
4: There is a serious situation here that we need to address.
7: There is some good news tonight. A new breakthrough on a second coronavirus vaccine. Scientists found the Moderna vaccine to be
13: 94.5% effective. COVID vaccines with stunningly positive results, but a November Gallup poll shows only 58% of Americans would agree to get vaccinated.
4: You could prevent hospitalizations and ultimately prevent deaths. So it would really be... I think bordering on tragic, if you have a tool that could save lives and you don't utilize that tool.
13: So let's verify. If only 58% of Americans get vaccinated, will we reach herd immunity? Our sources, Dr. Anthony Fauci and three other infectious disease experts. If they don't get vaccinated, how will that impact herd immunity?
4: You need a certain percentage of the population to be protected either from having already been infected or from getting vaccinated. We don't know the exact percentage, but given the efficiency of spread of this virus, we imagine it's somewhere 75 to 85% or more
13: our experts all estimated that at least 70-90% to 90% of Americans need to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity.
10: It's based on the infectiousness of, of the virus.
13: Dr. Stephen Kissler explained it like this. It's believed on average a person with COVID infects roughly three others. To bring down cases, Dr. Kissler says the goal is to get that infection rate below one by protecting at least two out of three people.
10: And so that's where we get the two-thirds or roughly 66% of the population who needs to be vaccinated. Since the vaccine isn't 100% effective, we need to increase that a little bit. And if on the order of 40% of the population doesn't get vaccinated, then we won't get close to that um, herd immunity threshold.
13: So what if we don't reach herd immunity? You're saying the virus may linger longer.
10: Oh, the virus will linger longer. There's
1: no doubt about it.
13: That's Dr. William Schaffner.
1: And wherever there's less acceptance, there'll still be COVID making people sick bringing them to the hospital
4: and causing deaths.
13: And that could affect vaccinated people as well. Early data shows at least 5% of COVID vaccine recipients aren't protected. And experts don't know if those who are will lose immunity over time.
2: We want to create a cocoon of protection around our most frail brothers and sisters.
10: If we get a lot of people vaccinated, then we can really reduce cases down a lot so that we can keep these large scale outbreaks from spreading, even if all of our immunity declines over time. But if we don't achieve that level of immunity in the population, then it'll just continue to spread around.
13: Our experts tell us that would certainly mean more months of masks and distancing. But Dr. Ali Mokdad warns it could have an even more devastating consequence.
6: If you allow a virus to circulate for a longer time, there is more chance for this virus to mutate, and we don't want this to happen with this virus because we have a vaccine that works against the current virus that's circulating right now.
13: What's the problem if it mutates?
6: Then the vaccine that we are developed may not work for it. We have basically, quite honestly, knock it down immediately,
13: and that means a huge percentage of Americans getting vaccinated right away.
6: It's very important for all of us to reach herd immunity through vaccinations. 80, 90% of Americans getting vaccinated will make sure that we all go back to our normal lives.
13: So we can verify, no, if only 58% of Americans get a COVID vaccine, we won't reach herd immunity. Do you expect that number to change and more Americans to come around?
10: Oh, sure, yes. People see what their neighbors are doing. Once people know people who have been vaccinated, I think that um, there will be a little bit more confidence in the vaccine.
13: But it's unclear what a delay could cost in American lives. It's against
10: the
6: clock.
13: With your Verify, I'm Gabe Cohen. <laughs>
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Stacy Stewart, who's the president and CEO of the March of Dimes. How are you? I'm
9: doing great. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. You're out with your annual report about premature births and the problems that the U.S. is having.
9: Yes, that's right. We at the March of Dimes are the leading organization fighting for the health of moms and babies, and every year we issue a, a, score, a report card, a scorecard, to really look at the issue of maternal and health in this country. And this year, we have seen another, uh, another uh, milestone in a, in a disturbing trend. This is the fifth year in a row that we are seeing an increase in the premature birth rate, which is now 10.2% in, in the United States. Um, and it really it really signals that we have, we're going sort of in the wrong direction with respect to the health of moms and babies in this country. In fact, uh, in this country, in the U.S., we are considered one of the most dangerous, highly developed nations in the world in which to give birth. And that simply is just unacceptable in the United States of America. Uh, today, and our and scorecard is actually a little different this year than we've issued previously, where we're looking now much more deep, deeply at infant mortality because premature birth and, and about two-thirds of infant deaths occur among infants that are born preterm. We've actually looked at not only infant mortality overall, but also the disparities uh, that exist among babies of color. And also looking at more information around maternal health as well, because we know the health of mom moms and babies are very uh, very much connected to each other. So we, we think we have a more robust scorecard to give a, give us more information about not only what is going on with respect to the health of moms and babies, but certainly helping us to understand what we can do. To actually reverse this trend,
0: you mentioned that the national rate preterm birth rate is 10.2 percent, which is now higher than it was in 2009. And Ohio's is at 10.5 percent, going in the wrong direction.
9: That's right. It's uh, up from 10.3 percent last year. Um, and when you look at um, the infant mortality rate uh, in Ohio, it's about 6.9 percent. But here, I want to point out again the disparities that exist among. Um, among uh, babies and, and with respect to uh, infant health overall, when you look at the preterm birth rate overall, it's about 10.5% in Ohio. It's about 14%, 48% higher than it is uh, for black babies um, in, the, in Ohio. And also for infant mortality, where the rate overall in the state is 6.9%, It's 13.7% among black babies in this country. So, again, um, Ohio has a lot of work to do. Um, When you look at cities like Columbus, for example, the rate of preterm birth is 11.6%. It's actually worse than the state overall. So there's there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, You know, Ohio is one of those states that actually uh, has uh, expanded Medicaid, um, and there is an extension of Medicaid and coverage women beyond 60 days after the baby is delivered. That's a step in the right direction. But again, there's more that needs to, to occur in order for there to be a reverse in the trend that we're seeing in Ohio and around the rest of the country.
0: Talking with Stacy Stewart, president and CEO of the March of Dimes, is the pandemic going to cause even more concerns when you look at this year's stats next year?
9: Well, I, I think one of the things that um, that concerns us is that we still have a fairly dysfunctional healthcare system in this country. Uh, about forty-some percent of all babies in this country are born and, and are covered by Medicaid. And um, and again, like Ohio, if other states don't take that same action to expand Medicaid, we will leave more and more women without the coverage that they that they need, the care that they need. The other thing that I think is really important is to make sure that. Um, some of what we, we see contributing to this increase in preterm birth rate and the preterm birth rate overall has to do with the health of the mom um, we see that maternal age actually contributes to poor health outcomes so women that are waiting um, later in life to have babies that could be actually complicating the, the health outcomes that they experience as well as their babies we also know that women who are uh, experiencing chronic health conditions like hypertension or diabetes or uh, have obesity challenges before pregnancy may experience worse, worse outcomes as well. So I think one of the things that we've got to do is really rethink how it is that women do plan for their pregnancies and make sure that they can have a successful and healthy pregnancy, how they can manage their health before they're pregnant, which is really, really important. Without the kind of health coverage and health access that women need, it will be more challenging for them to do this. And that is putting more women at risk, more moms at risk, and more babies at risk.
0: You mentioned that Ohio's preterm birth rate is 10.5 percent. Among our neighbors, uh, West Virginia, among the top at 12.5, Kentucky, 11.3, Indiana, 10.2, Michigan, 10.3, and Pennsylvania, 9.9. Some of the states out west, uh, Oregon, 8.3. What are they doing differently?
9: Well, um, Oregon has done some uh, some things to really make sure that um, there is more coverage available to their to their citizens. You know, I think one of the things that we see in some states, like in Ohio and Pennsylvania, there is a lot uh, a lot a lot of diversity in the state, a uh, higher African American population in some of the states that you mentioned, especially like in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan, and because we're seeing higher rates of preterm birth uh, among uh, black mothers and by babies in those states, it certainly is skewing the numbers higher in the states where there's a higher African-American population. But what it means is that we've got to pay attention to why these disparities exist in the first place. You know, one of what we actually do uh, really care about and understand is that many of these communities, black black communities and Hispanic communities and others, have been disproportionately underserved and uh, underrepresented in terms of the insured population. They often lack the kind of insurance and the access to care. And then I would say that another issue that we have we've seen and uh, that many women have expressed in their in terms of their experience with the healthcare system. Um, is that they often don't feel heard and paid attention to by the healthcare system. So we're investigating and looking deeply at this issue of implicit bias that exists in the healthcare system to make sure that women of color, that babies of color, get the care that they need when they need it and that we um, have a healthcare system that that doesn't allow implicit bias to interfere with the delivery of high-quality care.
0: You mentioned the infant mortality rate in Ohio is 6.9% and much higher in the bigger cities. And we're talking about, you're talking about uh, babies up to their first birthday. Is that right? We're not just talking about babies that never make it out of the hospital when they're born.
9: Right. It's, uh, it's looking at babies uh, that survive until their first until their first birthday, exactly. Infant mortality in some of our major cities is, uh, is often a big challenge. Um, And again, the disparities are really striking. When infant mortality in this country uh, has actually improved overall, it certainly has not gotten better in terms of um, infant mortality rates among babies of color as compared to white babies. And that is something that we've got to understand is what are the systemic failures that are allowing so many babies of color to not make it to their first birthday?
0: It's astounding because, you know, when you think about a couple with their new baby, you just... Automatically think that in a couple of years they're going to have a two-year-old, and yet you're talking about in more than one in ten instances in the bigger cities that doesn't happen.
9: That's exactly right, and and uh, babies that are born prematurely, again, about two-thirds of infant deaths occur among infants that are born prematurely, and even for those babies that are born prematurely that do make it past their first birthday. Too often, many of them are facing lifelong health challenges. They're facing developmental delays and physical disability and other kinds of challenges that really stay with them for their entire length of their lives. So that's why at the March of Dimes, we're trying to do everything we can to do research, make sure we understand the underlying causes of premature birth. The vast majority of preterm births happen among um, mothers when they're in their last stages of pregnancy, in fact, in the last uh, couple or few weeks of pregnancy, Uh, and so we're also looking very, very much at the the fact that a mom's own health, which may have deteriorated over the course of of pregnancy, could also be leading to her having to have the baby born, being born prematurely, often by C-section. So there are a lot of um, things that we've got to look at to make sure that Moms uh, are healthy, and it starts with a woman's health. It starts with her, her learning how to maintain her health, uh, a healthy weight, healthy diet. And, and one of the things that I think is really important is that, um, you know, if you live in a community that is a food desert, for example, or if you live in an area that doesn't have access to high-quality health care, that is automatically putting you at a higher risk of not being able to manage your own health And then the domino falls from there, right? So when the mother doesn't have the health care she needs and she's not as healthy as she should be or would like to be, that also is going to put her baby's health at risk. So we've got to, in our our work, we call it moving more upstream. We've got to move earlier in life and make sure that more and more people have access to good nutrition, are able to exercise, understand the importance of maintaining good health, because what we see is that these health outcomes of individuals and women actually do play a role in terms of health outcomes for future generations.
0: And, Stacey, how can people help or get more information?
9: For more information, uh, just go to marchofdimes.org. Certainly there are a lot of policy changes that can be put in place to improve these situations. And for that, we have a whole policy agenda that we're asking every elected official uh, to support, which we think will have a meaningful impact on these outcomes. And everybody can sign up at, at our website at uh, marchofdimes.org uh, for our our campaign, hashtag Blanket change, which is the policy agenda that we like to put in place. If you'd like to be a part of Blanket Change, just go sign up at our website. And demand that your elected official, um, ones that are going to Congress in, uh, in January uh, or state officials right now, take action to make sure that state policies support the health outcomes for moms and babies as well.
0: Stacy Stewart, president and CEO of the March of Dimes. Thanks so much for your time today.
9: Okay, thank you so much.